Are you interested in stories of ghosts, poltergeists, and the paranormal? Do you love an amazing tale of an unsolved mystery, a strange disappearance? How about a UFO encounter, or even a first-hand sighting of a creature that should only exist in your nightmares? Why not join us over at the Haunted UK podcast, where every two weeks we delve deep into the tales of the strange and unusual, the unsolved and the downright weird. The Haunted UK podcast is available on all major platforms, as well as being on Instagram and Coffee. So why not give us a follow and get involved with the show? Thanks for listening, and we really hope that you'll join us for our next episode. And on that note, it's back to the show. Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have entered the mind of someone that has a taste for the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside, warm up your mug, and enjoy your visit into the world that is the nightcap. Welcome, my friends, to the Nightcap, where nothing is taboo or wicked, and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. Tonight, I have a special treat for you. Historically, there have been multiple sightings and reported ferocities that only those with a broken mind have taken part in, but some may have been buried in lieu of more modern individuals, or simply because remembering has been too painful for the families as time marches on. They say not to dig up the past, for you may not like what you find. But I like to think of myself as an information grave robber that digs into the dirt of the forgotten, that shares my findings with those that can't or choose to not do it themselves. So sit close, make yourself comfortable, and prepare yourself for what I like to call the Fiendish Five of the Ancients. Our journey begins with a stop in feudal China in the second century during the Han Dynasty with a prince by the name of Liu Pengli, grandson of Emperor Wen and the nephew of Emperor Jing. He came from a prolific imperial family background, wanting for nothing. In 94 BC, a scribe by the name of Sima Quan completed a great work that his father had begun years earlier titled Record of the Grand Historian that catalogued the Han Dynasty. Oddly enough, Liu Pengli was but only a mere footnote in his work, and probably for good reason. When his father died, the part of China that he ruled over called Luang was divided into five provinces that his five sons would each take and rule over. Jidong became Lu's territory. History would show how unfortunate it became for those inhabitants living under their new overlord. 
Sima would recount in his writings that Lu was cruel and would go out on marauding expeditions with tens of slaves of young men who were hiding from the law, murdering people and seizing their belongings for sheer sport. This is nothing new for old world rulers, but Lu took it to a whole new level of viciousness. Sima noted that Lu's body count easily exceeded over a hundred victims, and that his murders were known across the kingdom, so people were afraid to come out of their homes at night. The tragic part of this tale is that his subjects were at the mercy of his rule. If they had a concern, there was no one they could plead to for help. Lu operated with near impunity for his crimes. However, his ties to royal blood could only protect him for so long. Sima states, a son of one of the victims accused Lu to the emperor, and the officials of the court requested that Lu be executed. Still, his uncle, even in the face of his nephew's barbarism, could not bear to have his own nephew killed. Instead of death, Lu was stripped of his title, his lineage, and was forced to live as a commoner in Shangyong, which is now Hubei. His sovereignty was officially abolished three decades later and reclaimed by his uncle. All of these accounts of Lu and his many nefariously grotesque deeds are sketchy at best. Some historians say they are much worse, while others state that what he did was a power move in order to weaken the feudal kingdoms. Still, some historians argue that he was framed and made a scapegoat. Aside from an ancient scroll that was written after his reign, we know next to nothing about the truth. You must come to your own conclusions. Our next entry comes all the way from ancient Rome. As it is, that period of history is rife with all sorts of malicious tendencies and debauchery, but some figures certainly stood out more than others. You see, between the 1st and 6th century AD, it wasn't all that uncommon for poison to be used as a weapon the same way handguns are favored by modern gangs. It was a political gesture of sabotage, a grab for power and revenge, that had all the makings of controversy in between. One such notorious maker of such toxic concoctions is Acousta of Gaul from the 1st century Roman Empire that was active in her evil herbalism during the reign of Julio Claudian and Britannicus. It is said she was the mastermind behind the former's demise, but that is mere speculation. She was favored by Emperor Nero for several years, having her train others in the art of chemical carnage. As far as her biography is concerned, little is known about Lacusta, except that she came from Gaul with little to her name, but had a criminal understanding on how certain flora could be combined to be of service to those with coin and influence. She served under Empress Agrippina the Younger, and it was here that she was supposedly ordered by Agrippina to sprinkle poison powder onto a mushroom given to Claudius by his food taster Hatus. This, obviously, did not go well, and was later killed by his doctor Gaius, who used a poison feather quill shoved down his throat to induce vomiting. Lacusta's poison of choice under Agrippina was Atropa Belladonna, which has been an ancient method of quick dispatch and common among Roman poisonings during this time. Each dose of this plant had different applications. One such use was for hallucinations, and only a skilled herbalist knew how much to give a person to become recreational, or, of course, deadly. 
Acusta was imprisoned after Claudius' assassination, and was later called upon Agrippina's son Nero to kill Claudius' son Britannicus. When the time came to administer it to the hapless heir, it proved to be slow and ineffectual, causing Nero to flog Acusta for her sloppiness, threatening her with execution. Knowing her life was on the line, she worked fast, and when an opportunity presented itself, administered a much more lethal dose to Britannica, which did the job. Nero gave Lacusta a full pardon, country estates, and even pupils to learn her perilous crafts. Nero fled Rome in 68 AD, keeping some of Lacusta's poison for himself in a gold box, but later died before he could utilize it. Since Lacusta was no longer under Nero's protection, his successor, Galba, seized her and condemned her to die in 69 AD. It is not known how she was killed, but she was not alone. Joining her in chains were some of her protégés, Helius, Petrobius, and Narcissus that Galba had deemed scum that had come to the surface in Nero's day. A dark end to a determined woman of spite that I can only imagine just wanted to be of service to her rulers. Were her reasons for personal gain, or for the glory of Rome? Those questions may never be answered. Not all serial killers had their folklore based in reality. Some of the most ruthless creatures to ever come out of the muck emerged from our grungy brains, and sometimes it might be better that they stayed there, for our next entry has a personal spot in my mental faculties as being so damn clever while also being too ridiculous to replicate. Procrustius, aka Procrustius the Stretcher, is a man born from Greek mythology. He is the son of Poseidon, Greek god of the sea, and is related to other mythological creatures such as Pegasus, yes, the flying horse, and Kronos, the Greek god of time. Seen as the first serial killer, at least by ancient Greek mythology standards, his tale is legendary. A rogue smith by trade turned bandit, he kept a house in Attica by the side of a busy road where he offered aid, good cheer, and overall hospitality to wayward travelers. It was here where the horrors began. All seemed fine as he ushered in the common man into his abode, where they were welcomed with a warm meal and a night's rest. However, the bed that they would sleep on was a special iron bed. You see, if the victim was shorter than the bed, he stretched them by hammering or racking the body to fit. If the person was too long, he cut off the legs to make the body fit the bed's length. Suffice it to say, no one survived the procedure. Little is known about how many victims fell prey to his hidden hospitable nature, or how long he was able to do this, but some speculate his victims to be in the hundreds. Fortunately, the Greek hero Theseus, who slayed the Minotaur, tricked Procrustius when he had stayed over and made him a victim of his own twisted torture. To borrow a phrase from Batman's The Penguin, was the death of Procrustius tragic irony or poetic justice? You have to hand it to the sky, though. Creativity and absolute madness can create the perfect storm of gut-wrenching terror. By modern standards, the depraved acts of the human race pale in comparison to those committed back in the 16th century by three notable mentally diseased derelicts. 
For the life of me, I can't name one serial killer from the past 80 years to top any of the last two on this roster. Yes, these last two will be gloriously bloody and downright face-melting in the sheer disbelief that people can be this unabashedly inhuman. If you thought the first three were bad, grab a sick bag and hold on tight. First, the runner-up in this carnage contest is Peter Stump, who is a wealthy German farmer. The specific date of birth is largely unknown, due to most records being destroyed during the Thirty Years' War, but most scholars agree that it is somewhere between 1535 and 1540 in a small village named Eprath near the country town of Bedburg, Germany. He had two children, a teenage girl named Sybil and a boy whose age and name are unknown. His last name has many different variations, from Stube, Stub, and Stumpf, and also has many other aliases, such as Abel, Ibel, and Ubel Griswold. His last name is most likely a nickname bestowed upon by an unknown individual given the fact that his left hand was cut off, leaving a stump. It was alleged that the werewolf had its left forepaw cut off, then the same injury proved the guilt of the man, which in Stump's case couldn't be closer to the truth. In 1589, Stump had one of the most lurid and famous werewolf trials in history. He was stretched on a rack, and before more torture was conducted, admitted to dabbling in witchcraft since the age of 12. He claimed that the devil had bestowed him a magic girdle that enabled him to metamorphose into the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like fire, a mouth great and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body, and mighty paws. However, no such belt was ever recovered. For 25 years, Stump had allegedly been an insatiable bloodsucker who gorged on the flesh of goats, lambs, and sheep, as well as men, women, and children. Being threatened with torture, Stump confessed to killing and eating 14 children, two pregnant women whose fetuses he ripped from their wombs and ate their hearts, panting raw and hot which he later described as dainty morsels. If that wasn't enraging and ghoulish enough, one of the children who he consumed was his own son, whose brain he devoured. Stump was also accused of being in an incestuous relationship with his own daughter, as well as another distant relative, on top of being a cannibal and serial killer, ticking all the boxes in the terrifying triangle of terror. If all that still wasn't enough to turn your stomach practically inside out, his daughter was sentenced to die along with him for merely being a hapless victim. Stump even went so far as to state that he had intercourse with a succubus sent from hell. In the end, Stump was sentenced to die on October 31st, 1589, along with his daughter and mistress Catherine. His execution is said to be one of the most brutal to be carried out in history. Stump's body was put into a wheel, where flesh was torn from his body in ten places with red-hot pincers, followed by his arms and legs. Then his limbs were broken with the blunt side of an axe head to prevent him from returning from the grave before he was beheaded and his body burned on a pyre. His daughter and mistress were summarily flayed and strangled, then burned alongside Stump. As a warning against similar behavior, 
local authorities erected a pole with the torture wheel, with the figure of a wolf on it, and at the very top, they placed Peter Stump's severed head. Peter Stump has been referenced in popular culture, such as Doctor Who, and even Scooby-Doo. They depict a man with a missing left hand in werewolf form in an episode on the cartoon. There is no shortage of absolutely inescapable, unrepentant evil in this tale, and if I'm being perfectly honest, I wish to never tell this story again, because it even causes me to get the willies and make my flesh crawl. Oddly enough, our so-called champion of butchery is also named Peter, who is also from Germany, but, unlike our previous Peter, his tale is a bit of an anomaly, and details become muddied from the time of his crimes to his ultimate demise. Peter Niers was a German bandit and serial killer who is said to have killed upwards of 544 people, including unborn fetuses cut out of the wombs of pregnant women for use in black magic rituals and as personal late-night snacks. Yes, this tale is, indeed, one you need to read while not eating. Information about Niers is sparse and fractured, being that most of his biography comes from contemporary ballads, true crime reports, circulating warrants, and confessions extracted during torture, which leads one to wonder if he really did kill as many as he said, or if his will merely broke while under interrogation. Nears was a low-level bandit that was part of a criminal network of thieves roaming the countryside in search of easy prey, but sometimes forming raid parties and other times splitting to commit murders or petty thievery. This type of organization did not originate from Nears, but he was mentored by a man named Martin Steer, who, in the 1550s, had led around 49 bandits, including Nears, who ostensibly worked as shepherds, murdered and robbed their way from the Netherlands to Württemberg. To citizens of the old country, shepherds were seen as lower-class disgraces and dishonorable. The only thing lower than a shepherd was a wandering minstrel. For these miscreants, they were seen as above suspicion, as they had an occupation that was, quote, being alone with the animals, seen as time to reflect on their misdeeds. Nier's crimes spanned 15 years, and some of his cohorts took part in his grisly work. In 1577, a few of the gang members were caught, including Nier's. He had a couple accomplices, including a man named Claus Stryker, who admitted to authorities that he had helped Niers murder a 20-year-old woman in Gotswald. Another accomplice named Peter Oblath helped identify 14 gang members, including Peter Niers, but failed to specify if he helped Niers carry out any crimes. His first arrest was in Gersbach, where he was tortured and confessed to 75 acts of murder, but somehow managed to escape, the details of which are widely unknown. Over the next few years, Leading up to his final arrest in 1581, pamphlets, ballads, and stories were written detailing his cannibalism and black arts mastery. It was said that when Niers' gang gathered at Flasburg, they had a meeting with Satan, who gave his blessing to the gang's ambitions, even providing them all with monthly pay, along with granting supernatural powers to Niers. Niers convinced himself that he was intangible and even invisible to his old mentor, claiming that the only reason he had been captured was because he was missing his bag of magic materials, the critical ingredient of which was, you guessed it, 
fetuses. During the casting, the heart of the fetus had to be consumed. Another ghastly footnote to his use of fetuses is the flesh and fat from them that he used to make candles, which would permit him to rob houses without awakening the inhabitants. Other supernatural powers that Peter had claimed to possess is physical transformation, shape-shifting into a dog, cat, goat, or something inorganic such as a log or a stone. However, these claims were merely embellished in songs and obviously had no basis in reality. Most accounts closer to the truth reveals that Nears was a master of disguise. Underlings claim that Nears frequently changed his appearance and sometimes masqueraded as a common soldier and other times as a leper. The common theme was that Nears always had a purse full of coin, carried two loaded pistols, and a huge two-handed sword. As for his physical appearance, songs regaled him as being haggard and old-looking, with crooked fingers and a long scar on his chin. A late ballad contains the circumstances under which Nears was finally discovered, leading to his arrest and execution. When arriving in Newmarket, he lodged at an inn called the Bells. A few days later, he felt the need to wash up and went to a public bathhouse, leaving behind his bag of tricks in the care of the innkeeper. Unfortunately, Nears had achieved a level of notoriety, and his aforementioned physical appearance wasn't hard to spot, due in part to the pamphlets in circulation. A cooper, or maker of various containers, recognized him, and soon the entire bathhouse was whispering that he may be the murderer that the authorities are searching for. Oblivious to the mood, two patrons snuck out proceeding to the inn. On request, the innkeeper gave them Nears' bag, opened it up, and to their horror, found that it contained several severed hands and hearts from murdered fetuses. Acting quickly, eight men stormed into the bathhouse and apprehended Nears. When confronted with the contents of the bag, he immediately confessed to the killings. In September 1581, over the course of three days, Nears was tortured and then executed. On the first day, strips of his flesh were torn from his body and heated oil was poured into his wounds. On the second day, his feet were smeared with heated oil and then held above glowing coals, thereby roasting him. On September 16th, the final day, he was dragged to the place of the execution and broken on the wheel, which was slammed down upon him 42 times. Barely breathing, but still alive, he was finally dismembered by quartering, which resulted in his death. For those that don't know what being broken on the wheel is, rest assured that it is not pretty, and I'll spare you the details. I do recommend researching it yourself though, because it is fascinating in its brutality. Suffice it to say, our dearly departed Nears suffered immensely before leaving this world, as he should for being pure, hideous, scum incarnate. Bonus Entry Some of the most ghastly acts that we have read about, seen on film, or learned about through song and merriment, are sometimes embellished, and oftentimes, outright based in fiction. It's a well-known fact that details can get fuzzy the more something is told, which is just a psychological trick our brains do to us, despite our best efforts to remember accurately. That may or may not be the case, 
for this extra enigmatic entry, but one thing is for sure, it makes for one hell of a story. The person in question is a man by the name of Christman Jenna Pertinga, a tongue twister of a name to be sure. His story is said to be set in the 1570s in a cave in the forests of the Rhineland, which interestingly enough was also the area that Adolf Hitler would set up his own camp in attempting to disregard the Treaty of Versailles. However, Kreisman was not a dictator, at least not in the same way that Hitler was. He had his own gang of robbers, which eventually led to murder. Not long after, his operation was run out of the forest and took to not only robbing travelers wandering the local roads, but taking their lives as well. Honor amongst thieves was not something Kreisman adhered to, as sometimes his rage was so strong that he took to killing his own men, which quickly increased his mounting body count. For 13 years, or as the story goes, Kreisman kept a journal detailing every single one of his slayings. By the time he was captured, there were 964 victims logged, and he later admitted that his ultimate goal was to have an even 1,000. On top of his massive buildup of bodies, his wealth was said to be around 70,000 gulden, which is the modern equivalent of 780,000 US dollars. To put that amount into perspective, you could buy a very large home at that time for around 10,000 gulden, and considering the average worker at this time earned only 300 gulden a year, Christman would have been set for life. Remember that I mentioned how details can be lost to history and sometimes skewed? Christman's tale is no different. On top of the claims of his victims and massive wealth, some accounts claim that he possessed supernatural powers, could become invisible at will, and even communed with a secret cabal of dwarven craftsmen. Some accounts make him a cannibal as well, and consumed his victims to enhance his powers. Then, there is a story about his capture. Supposedly, Christman became a bit forlorn and lonely in his later years, proving that indiscriminately killing just shy of a thousand people and being in league with shady little people that make dark art trinkets doesn't lead to happiness. So instead of getting help or attempting to do something good, he kidnaps a woman and holds her hostage in his cave for an unknown period of time, but apparently long enough to father seven kids with her that he then ate. This poor woman eventually escaped and led authorities to his sanctum with a trail of peas. Where she got these is anyone's guess. If this sounds a bit too familiar to anyone that loves fairy tales, well, it actually is somewhat similar to Grimm's The Robber Bridegroom, which is a story about a woman that leaves a trail of peas as she's walking out to her betrothed woodland house where she learns that he is actually part of a group of murderous cannibals. Christman was caught, tried, and sentenced on June 17, 1581 to the oh-so-lovely breaking of the wheel. I did mention that I wasn't going to divulge any information about this delightful way of killing someone, but... I lied. You see, it starts with the person being tied to a wagon wheel, where the executioner breaks the condemned's arms and legs. The broken limbs would be threaded through the spokes of the wheel, which was mounted on a pole. It wasn't necessarily a common form of execution, it was more reserved for the most vile and monstrous. A shroud was sometimes used to wrap the victim up, 
so that the limbs wouldn't fall off of the wheel. The entire process finally ended with the accused being decapitated. Now that you understand how barbaric this method of ending someone was, let's get back to our friend Christman, who endured nine agonizing days on the wheel thanks to the executioner who wanted to drag out his suffering for as long as possible. According to some sources, he never screamed, but moaned almost as if he enjoyed it, and some claimed his cries could be heard from miles away. Regardless, he ceased to be, like all the others, with a swift beheading. So, where does that lead us with his overall origin and accuracy of his life? Not any closer to the truth, I'm afraid. Some claim his execution date was later, and some claim it was earlier than reported. The amount of people he killed has become massively skeptical, but he would have had to kill six people every month, which would have raised a lot of alarm bells around the town, so it is most likely that he didn't kill anywhere near that number, but most can agree that he did have many victims under his belt. The main problem historians have with Christman is that there are many elements from other stories that mirror purely fictitious fables and other short stories enough that some have written the real person off as nothing but an amalgamation of other characters. The cave, for example, is actually a real cave called Lipold's Cave near the Ling River, but it was the basis for another story about a mayor's daughter that was held hostage by a bandit who left to get medicine and spoke to a fireplace about her predicament that was overheard by her father. It makes the whole mythos of this man seem like an illusion to the reality of events. In the end, it is hard to tell if Christman is merely a wild conjuration that was colored in by centuries of bards and scholars passing down old wives' tales. Maybe he did indeed exist, and people feared his name so much that they thought his soul would get angry and it might exact revenge on them, and that paranoia persisted over time, then faded into nothing more than a bedtime story to make your kids behave. Nevertheless, if you decide to tell your little ones your version of his tale, be sure to keep it interesting, so that they learn to behave lest they have nightmares for years to come. <laughs> And so ends another round of Sinister Servants of the Insane and Evil. Thank you so much for joining me next to the fire and keeping an old soul company. I do hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. Be sure to follow on Radio Public, Spotify, and as more platforms become available, be sure to comment and follow on those as well. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.